Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, uh, September the 18th, 2023. Uh, back in December of 2016, two Harvard political scientists, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt wrote a, a very influential op-ed in the New York Times asking whether Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. That in part resulted in their best-selling book, an iconic book, How Democracies Die, came out in 2018. Uh, enormously successful, won all sorts of prizes, already has over 5,000 uh, mostly positive reviews on Amazon. Uh, the good news is uh, that Levitsky and Ziblatt are back, although I'm not sure it's entirely good news since the American political system isn't in great shape. Uh, they wrote an interesting op-ed um, uh, earlier this month uh, entitled uh, in the New York Times again, Democracy's Assassins Always Have Accomplices. And this is attached to a new book they have called Tyranny of the Minority. How, uh, and I got uh, Stephen Levitsky on the show now. We're going to uh, talk to Ziblatt later this week. Stephen, um, might that op-ed and indeed even the book be entitled, Is the Republican Party a Threat to Democracy? Well, that's certainly part of the book. Um, one of the, really the first half of the book tackles this question of um, what happened to the Republican Party. It's not common that mainstream political parties, established political parties, the Republican Party has been around for more than a century and a half competing in elections. It is not common that a mainstream conservative party goes off the rails in this way and, and effectively abandons its commitment to democracy. So the first half of the book examines the question of why that happened, why the Republican Party radicalized the way it did. Uh, the second half of the book is more about our country's institutions. And that's something we've been thinking a lot about over the last five years since we wrote How Democracies Die um, and thought more and more about how our how U.S.'s rather unique constitutional structure is actually making the problem worse. But they are connected, those two parts, because, of course, yes. the Republican Party has increasingly, not all of it, but much of the party fetishizes the Constitution, which may not be accidental. Right. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a, a constitutional expert and I'm not an expert in, in U.S. constitutional history. But one thing that became clear in researching this book is that the United States, even though our Constitution is extraordinarily difficult to reform, we have a long history in this country of working to make our political system more democratic, oftentimes through constitutional reform, sometimes through other means. But going back to the Bill of Rights, which was passed two years after uh, after the Constitution was, was adopted. Um, for most of our history, we've worked to make the Constitution more democratic, as have other democracies across the world. And what's really striking is, and this gets to your question, is over the last half century, we've stopped. The United States, in, in my lifetime, in most of our adult lifetimes, has stopped talking about constitutional reform, stopped talking about making our system more democratic, and in part, that has to do with the sort of originalist line of thinking uh, on the political right that that sort of treats the Constitution as as almost biblical and sacred and, and untouchable, which I think is dangerous for any constitution in any democracy. 
So, uh, and, I, and I don't think this is particularly controversial, you know, the way in which the American political system has atrophied. The astonishing thing, Stephen, again, you don't need me to tell you this, is that in every other respect, America is the most dynamic place in the world, culturally, economically, technologically. What is it about its political system that has created this bizarre, surreal and very troubling cleavage between uh, an atrophied political system and a dynamic system in every other sense? That's a great question. I don't think I've got a definitive answer to that, but just some partial answers. One, again, uh, it's just really difficult to reform the U.S. Constitution. Among democracies, the U.S. Constitution is the hardest in the world to reform. And that leads people to essentially throw up their hands and not even not even go down that path. Uh the, the second thing, which is is sort of the the, the kicker, is that the, the polarization, the partisan polarization that's existed in the United States since at least the early 90s makes any thought of constitutional reform um, ridiculous, right? Because people, uh, g- given that in previous periods, the parties were pretty moderate, the parties were internally heterogeneous, so it was possible as late as the 1960s and 1970s to think about multi-party or cross-party coalitions aimed at constitutional reform. The United States came very, very close to abolishing the uh, Electoral College in 1969 and 1970 because there was support in both parties for, for doing it. But now with a highly polarized, two disciplined polarized parties, the idea of any kind of cross-party cooperation behind constitutional reform strikes people as 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 is off the wall. Uh, but thirdly, and this is um, a little fuzzier, but there has been some, some, some work on this, is that our political culture, particularly in recent decades, I don't think this has always been true, but we do, as you said, we fetishize our constitution. We treat it, um, you know, we're also one of the more religious countries in, in the West, and there's been a, a resurgence of religious fundamentalism in, in the last half century as well. That, again, that attaches importance to the, supposedly anyway, to the Bible as written. And we, maybe because we're such an old, we have such an old constitution, maybe because it's such a successful constitution, we have this tendency, I think, increasingly in recent generations to look at it as something that is, that's untouchable, which, again, um, is, is really, really dangerous. Stephen, I really enjoyed the book, especially, I think, the first half, the history, the political history of, uh, of America, the Republican and Democratic Party. And one of the things that I was struck with, I kind of knew it, but you, you do a great job really uh, explaining it in some detail, is how profoundly undemocratic America was uh, after Reconstruction up until the 1960s. Uh, an authoritarian system that was essentially built not by the Republicans, but by the Democrats. Maybe you can explain a little bit more about that and and how shocking that might be for um, many contemporary Americans who simply don't know American history. Yeah, it's really, I mean, as you know, Americans have a, a, a tendency to, to think of ourselves as, um, as a pioneer and a model democracy for the rest of the world. And there have been moments in our history um, where that's at least partially true, but um, we have a, a tendency as well to be um, painfully ignorant of, of, of some of the less democratic parts of our history. And so the, the, the reason why we wrote a whole chapter on Reconstruction 
uh, in part, it's just important for Americans to, to be more aware of it. But we see real parallels to the contemporary period, uh, although the parties are flipped, as you noted. Um, after the Civil War, um, the, during the initial aftermath of the Civil War, the, uh, re the Republican-dominated Congress, the Republicans were a new party uh, that was dominant after the Civil War that was, of the two parties, far and away the more committed to, to civil rights, in, imposed uh, this, this process of reconstruction in which, um, among other things, African-Americans in the South were rapidly and thoroughly enfranchised. They were given the right to vote. Slavery was abolished. African-Americans were given the right to vote. And the federal government uh, took dramatic steps to enfranchise, uh, to register African-Americans to vote across the South. And it dramatically, albeit briefly, changed the politics of the South. When, when African-Americans could vote, African-Americans were an absolute majority of voters in several states, and they were close to an absolute majority in several other states in the South. And so this not only uh, politically threatened the Democratic Party, which had been the dominant party in the South, but it threatened the entire racial order, right? This is a society, the Southern United States, that's coming out of slavery, in which racial hierarchies are, um, are, are incredibly um, uh, stark and, 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 uh, and, and steep. And, uh, and suddenly, African-Americans are being elected to positions of, of power, to legislatures, to, uh, um, across the South. And so almost overnight after the Civil War, the entire racial order of the South is being threatened and the political power of the Democratic Party is being threatened. The response was a wave of terrorism uh, by uh, terrorist groups, including the Ku Klux Klan, affiliated with the Democratic Party. Uh, some some violent seizures of power the use through both force, threat of force and election fraud, and eventually a rewriting of constitutional and electoral rules to effectively strip the right to vote uh, from almost all African-Americans. The, the, the percentage of African-Americans voting in presidential elections fell from uh, well over 60 percent to 2 percent in the it's early. It's astonishing. And, and you bring it. I, I mean, I was new about it, but you it, it's such it's so astonishingly shocking that it, it makes America, for example, a much less democratic place than any country in Eastern Europe under the Soviet domination. Uh, less democratic than the than Eastern Europe under Soviet under Soviet domination. Well, two percent goes from 60 percent of people to voting to two percent. I'm not sure what. I mean, there was, of course, no democracy in Poland or Romania or Hungary, but yeah, it was I'm as not much. sure I would go that far. I, you wouldn't go uh, that far? As to the U.S. South was thoroughly authoritarian. I, we compare it, for example, to Mexico under the pre in the 20th century, which I think is a, a well, better that's your comparison. neighborhood. That's your you're a Latin Americanist, but I'm, I'm assuming that there was less democracy in the American South than there was in much of Latin America in this period. Uh, then parts of Latin America, for sure. I mean, during during uh, parts of the 20th century, Latin America was under uh, military rule. So um, it, they they were, I, I think it's fair to say, pretty equally un, undemocratic. Yeah, so but, uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to. The key point, though, I think, is that if you take base standard modern political science definitions of democracy, 
The United States is not a fully democratic system until 1965. Yeah, I take that. And that's the standard narrative. But what your book reiterates is that there was no slow progress towards democracy. It suddenly exploded, I guess, in the 60s, although there's lots of arguments about what really happened then. But in the period before, it was profoundly undemocratic, not just there weren't just blotches, little problems, little right. little areas which didn't work. Here was a, a system that was rooted in uh, if I don't know whether the right word is authoritarianism, Stephen, is there a better word to describe what was happening in the South? Well, it was definitely authoritarian in that uh, the, the, the basic rights of African-Americans were uh, were violently suppressed. It's not just that they were excluded; they were they were repressed. So it's a kind of legal uh, authoritarianism, or a, a yeah, I mean, you might call it authoritarianism. There are there, there a term that's used uh, occasionally is ethnocracy, meaning democracy for the for the uh, the racially dominant group, but uh, excluding others. So you know, Israel arguably is evolving into an eth- ethnocracy. I think if uh, Hindu nationalists get their way. India may move in that direction. U.S. South was clearly an ethnocracy. It was a democracy for for white Southerners, but not for others. Or South Africa. Oh, absolutely. Right. So what you're already saying. We we had an apartheid-like system in the United States for nearly a century. Uh, Ethnocracy is an interesting word. We are talking with Stephen Levitsky, one of America's leading political scientists. He's the author of a new book with his partner, at least his writing partner, Daniel Zeblatt, uh, The Tyranny of the Minority. Uh, He is, of course, well-known as the co-author with Zeblatt of How Democracies Die. We're going to take a short break. And then, Stephen, afterwards, I want to talk about the Republican Party more specifically and how to change this system. So we'll be back in a second. We just have a short message from our sponsor, Liberty's Quarterly. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Stephen Levitsky, the author or the co-author of Tyranny of the Minority. We talked about American history before the break. Uh, Stephen, what happened in the 1960s? So much has been written. And this transformation of the Republican Party from a relatively democratic one, small d, to one that you suggest is increasingly, if not authoritarian, ethnocratically authoritarian. Yeah, I think given the the, the, the party's unwillingness to accept the outcome of the 2020 elections, I think it's it's pretty pretty old fashioned uh, authoritarian at this point. Listen, we and this is something we we spend a lot of time on in in the book um, because we think it's a it's a long but very important process, and I'll try to get through it uh, concisely. The Republicans were the were the minority party in the mid 20th century. After the New Deal, uh, after the Roosevelt administration, the Republican Party were solidly a minority party. And so like minority parties do, they were looking around in the 1950s for ways to expand their electoral base, ways to grow and become uh, a majority party again. 
And the civil rights movement starting in the 60s, uh, starting in the 50s, uh, actually late 40s, uh, but certainly uh, culminating in the early 60s, gave Republican leaders that opportunity. The South, Southern whites, as we just talked about, were overwhelmingly Democrats, overwhelmingly Democrats. But the Democratic Party increasingly came to be seen as the party of civil rights at the national level especially in 1964-65 under the Johnson administration. And so many Southern whites were unhappy with the Democratic Party's embrace of civil rights. And Republican leaders saw that they had an opportunity to win votes. And for 20 years, starting with, with Goldwater in 64, continuing through Nixon and his Southern strategy, very much continuing with Reagan, expanding with Reagan in his explicit pursuit of Southern evangelical voters, the Republican Party went after Southern whites and was very, very successful in bringing conservative Southern whites into the Republican fold. That was a great deal politically for the Republican Party in the late 20th century because the United States was still an overwhelmingly white Christian country. And so the Republicans succeeded. They became the dominant party in the United States in the 1980s and uh, in 1990s. The problem is that America eventually changed due to the success of civil rights and due to large scale immigration starting in the 60s. The United States becomes a much, much more diverse place in the 21st century. And the Republicans had spent 40 years setting themselves up successfully as America's white Christian party. And that party faced two problems in the 21st century. First of all, it had increasing difficulty winning national elections because it's, it's it's fine to be the party of white Christians when America is 80% white Christian as it was in the late 20th century. It's less successful in a country as diverse as we are today. So this is why, in part, the party loses seven out of eight uh, popular votes in presidential elections. They can't win national majorities anymore. But even more fundamental than that, this this uh, conservative white Christian base that the Republican Party had, had worked so hard to build was deeply threatened by America's transition to multiracial democracy. And this was felt most acutely during the, the Obama administration. But in the, in the 21st century in the United States, th this country began to look and feel a lot different. Really, for the first time, racial hierarchies were seriously being challenged. And that was deeply, deeply threatening to many Republican voters, the people uh, that the Republicans had, had worked so hard to recruit into their own fold. Many, many Republican voters, not all, of obviously, but many Republican voters felt in the 21st century like the country that they grew up in was being taken away from them. They, had, they felt a, a, an intense assault on their dominant social status. Uh, and that radicalized them. There was a, a survey uh, done by the um, sponsored by the American Enterprise Institute in 20. 21 found that 56% of Republicans agreed with the statement that American culture is changing so fast that we may need to use force to stop it. Um, and so the Republican Party base radicalized in the context of multiracial democracy. Uh, and that's where we are today. I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, with another book that's coming out next month. Uh, Got him coming on my show, David Leonard. He's a New York Times writer. Ours was the shining future, the story of the American dream. In some ways, it's a very similar book to yours or focusing on similar themes. But 
he doesn't exclusively look at the Republican Party. He looks more broadly at it, sort of the failure, I guess, of the American dream. He talks about the failure, for example, of the Democrats in the 1960s who failed to connect with white America. He calls this the failure of Brahmin liberalism. Do you see any responsibility for this degeneration of American democratic culture on the left as well? Or is this purely a problem with the Republican Party? The Democratic Party has has behaved to me like a like a standard political party. Um, and it's one national majorities, right? It's, it, it has certainly become a more urban, college-educated based party. It's become a party uh, of, of, of urban college-educated whites and a, and, a, and a basically a rainbow coalition of ethnic majority ethnic minorities, excuse me. Um, but it's winning it's winning national elections. I'm not sure what um, it, it has not appealed to the angriest of Americans. It has not appealed to the guy in the diner in Ohio, that all the journalists run to to uh, to interview when when you know Trump wins wins a victory, um, but to assign but it but it but it wins national majorities right, which is what political parties are supposed to do. How I don't quite it, it seems a a twist too far to me to blame the crisis of American democracy on the fact that the Democrats have chosen to appeal to other voters other than the ones who were most angry today. What about the economic side of all this, Stephen? Uh, Leonard and many others have talked about, written about Reagan and the birth of what some people call neoliberalism, a much more free market kind of economics, which certainly under Reagan was positive, I mean, maybe there was an element of race and racism in it, but this can't simply be understood as the politics of race, can it? No, of course not. Politics is uh, is is very complicated, and the and especially in the, in in a, in a society as big, heterogeneous, diverse as the United States, uh, and there's clearly an economic element um, uh, at at work in the sense that it, first and foremost, the level of income inequality in the United States has increased dramatically in the last 50 years, really since Reagan. Uh, and the level of social mobility has declined dramatically in the last 50 years. And th there is no question that that, and there's a lot of research that shows that that interacts very powerfully with, um, uh, with racial and cultural discontent uh, in, in, um, generating public disaffection and public anger. So were we at the levels of income inequality and the levels of social mobility that we were at 50 years ago, it's a pretty good bet that the level of, of, of anger and hostility that, uh, that presently fuels Trumpism would, it would exist, but it probably would not be as intense. So there's no question that economics uh, and culture and race interact. But if you if you look at who the Republican Party has been incorporating into its coalition in the last 50 years, um, 
it's not really economics that's driving the reconfiguration of its of its coalition. Wealthy business uh, owners of uh, have been a, a core constituency of the Republican Party going back more than a century. Um, they've always been the party of the rich and always been the party of of business. What's new is their incorporation of the vast majority of evangelical Christians. If you go back before Reagan, evangelical Christians were evenly distributed between the two parties. In fact, a slight majority of them voted for Jimmy Carter. Um, now they're overwhelmingly Republican. And uh, the other the other group, which overlaps with with evangelical Christians, is racially conservative whites. If you go back to the 1970s, racially conservative whites were evenly distributed between the two parties. Now they're overwhelmingly Republican. So the biggest change has been, uh, even though uh, policy-wise, Reagan brought in a, 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 uh, an important economic change, and even though economics clearly, clearly is at play here, what's what's really shifted in terms of the Republican coalition um, has more to do, I think, with with um, uh, race, religion, and culture. What about demography? One of the things that unites people both on the left and the right in America is there are too many old people in politics. Uh, Fox reports, not just on uh, Pelosi and Biden, but also uh, uh, McConnell. Uh, and everyone seems to be in agreement, even the New York Times, that Congress has got too old. Is that another element of our tyranny of the minority? Is there no young people in politics? Stephen? I'm not sure I would connect it to tyranny of the minority. I think it's too easy for our legislators to get reelected, uh, which is part of the problem. It's really interesting because in other democracies where um, where we see a fair amount of discontent, we're actually seeing uh, younger figures get elected, uh, whether it's Chile or um, uh, El Salvador recently. Um, it's it's one expression of discontent by electorates is to sort of you know get rid of the the older right. generation and, and elect someone who's uh, very young. Argentina, Argentina. Well, Millet is not that is not that young, but um, he's fresh in politics. Though. He's fresh, and so it's interesting that the U.S. electorate hasn't done that yet. I wouldn't be shocked to see it happen uh, in the near future. I think a, a generational turn by the electorate is around the corner. Finally, uh, Stephen, you're an expert in Latin America. Um, you mentioned Chile and Peru. I mentioned Argentina. Uh, what can America then learn? Uh, it's ironic that it's all been turned on its head. People always assume that um, the rest of America had much to learn from American democracy. What can America learn in terms of its tyranny of the minority from the rest of Latin America? Are there countries in Latin America that are that could be models for America to reinvent itself, to modernize its politics? I think so. It's it's, it's worth noting that uh, Freedom House, which is one of these uh, international NGOs that uh, assigns a scores to every uh, country in the world in terms of level of democracy, they've got a, a global freedom index that ranges from zero, most authoritarian, to to 100, which is most uh, democratic. I think Norway, um, Norway, Finland, and New Zealand get the highest scores. Anyway, it's always New Zealand, Norway, and Finland, Stephen. They they get they get hundreds. So there are five countries in Latin America today 
that have a score equal to or better than the United States. Argentina, which which is um, notorious for its military coups <laughs> and its instability in the 20th century, Argentina today has a better democracy score than the United States. That's astonishing. But in Argentina, nobody is trying to overturn election results. Uh, election workers are not faced with uh, with with violent threats. So it, it, it makes sense that the United States has sunk below Argentina. Argentina as well, and this is, this is not the only reason for its score, but Argentina is the last presidential democracy on earth to eliminate uh, its electoral college. There used to be electoral colleges. Most of Latin America replicated the United States when they wrote new constitutions in the 19th century. So electoral colleges were, were widespread. Now every presidential democracy in Latin America has gotten rid of its electoral college, leaving the United States as the only one. But let me give one more example that I think is more recent, where I think uh, U.S. Republicans could learn from Latin America, and that's Brazil. Um, Brazil, as you know, had uh, a very similar um, kind of right-wing populist get elected in 2018, Jair Bolsonaro. The guy was, uh, 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 U.S. reporters called him the Trump of the tropics. He was a, a far-right populist, uh, modeled himself on Trump, very, governed very similar to Trump, did a really lousy job of, of responding to COVID. Like Trump, he kind of lost some public support because he governed badly. Like Trump, he had a hard time getting reelected. Like Trump, he narrowly lost. Like Trump, he uh, tried to undermine the legitimacy of the electoral process. Excuse me. Um, the difference is that in Brazil, after the 2022 election, all of Bolsonaro's major right-wing allies, governors, leaders of Congress, all of them accepted the results of the election, congratulated the winner, and separated themselves from, from Bolsonaro and his supporters who attempted to overturn the election. There was no uh, sort of mimicking uh, Trump's language about, there was no stop to steal in Brazil. The Brazilian right accepted the results of the election and clearly separated itself from any violent effort to overturn. That's the way Democrats, small d Democrats should behave. And of course, Brazil also has a complicated racial history, so it makes it in some ways a lot more like uh, the United States than other countries in, in Latin America. So, Stephen, if there was one thing we can begin with, I am assuming, and, and you focus a lot on this in the book, uh, getting rid of the Electoral College. For sure. I mean, I, I, we, we have a list of 15 proposals for institutional reform, some of which are constitutional, some of which are not, that we think would help to make uh, American so one democracy. Thing, 15 is a long list. One thing. Where do we start? Electoral College is a good place to start. We came very close in 1969, 1970. We're the only presidential democracy on earth where the loser of the presidential election can become president. It's a pretty good place to start. 